Hi, Stephen. We've got you here today to talk about your book, The Wines of Great Britain, and also the English wine and Welsh wine industry as a whole. But I think for those who don't know you, it would be useful to get some background on yourself. And I know you've, you've been involved in wine for many, many years, but could you briefly sum up your journey to where you are today? Okay, well, in 1973, when my son was born, my first child, we were looking for a, for a, a new to move to a new bigger house. We only had a little one bedroom cottage at the time. And we saw a, we saw a property for sale that had a little vineyard attached to it in, in Nettlestead near Maidstone. Uh, that vineyard is no longer there. But the, uh, but we, you know, it, it, we got back. I didn't buy the house. We didn't buy the house, but we got back. And obviously, I don't remember the sequence of events, but I found out there was an English Vineyard Association, which subsequently I joined. Uh, and we went to one or two uh, events that they had put on. We went visited a few vineyards. New Hall in, in Essex was one of the first I visited because that was where my parents lived. I grew up in the famous CM3 postcode, which is, ne is now the most bevineyarded, if that's the right word, postcode in the country. Uh, encompasses the Crouch Valley, which is well known nowadays for its quality grapes. Um, and we went to see one or two others. I got in touch with some people on the Isle of Wight. Adjuston, which was one of the leading vineyards of the time. And slowly but surely, we got the idea of planting our own vineyard and, and getting into the business. Uh, my father-in-law, who was a very, um, was, a, was a large scale arable farmer, he was very supportive. He said, well, he basically said, if you get trained, you, work, you, you learn how to do it, you do the work, I'll find the farm for you. And, you know, it's a marriage made in, in wherever, Kent. And um, that's what <laughs> happened. And you know, we went to Germany for two years. I, I learned German because, you know, the varieties we grew at the time were, were Germanic mainly, apart from Sable Blanc. The technology we used was Germanic. You know, the help that people had got, Lamberhurst had had help from Geisenheim. Dr. Becker, Professor Dr. Becker at Geisenheim had, very, had been very helpful to a number of growers in the country. And so it felt that Germany was the place to go. Um, and uh, as I say, I learned German and went, worked for 12 months in a big vineyard and winery out there, learned obviously firsthand how to do it, how to prune, how to plant, how to canopy management, if you didn't call it that in those days, how to weed. Uh, we, that was, you know, the first job I ever had. And then I started going to Geisenheim as a guest student, guest her as they call it, a guest student. And uh, I did then after I finished work, I did a couple of terms there, by which time my father-in-law had found a farm which he wanted to buy anyway, and there was some good land on it. Um, and he bought it when we basically moved in and, and, and started you know, the next spring we started planting vines, Easter Monday, 1977. And that today is, Chapel, is where Chapel Down is based. Right, um, okay. Where the, where, where the winery is. Um, I had nothing to do with the founding of Chapel Down. And we had that for a number of years and then eventually we sold it. I carried on winemaking there. I made wine there for 22 consecutive vintages. And then things changed and I got out and then I became a consultant, essentially, since it's around just the turn of the century so over 20 years now and what about the desire to be or rather what moment was it that you thought i'm going to be an mw because that's that's such a feat to have that as an achievement particularly with how well you did as well i think you've done one of the best the highest marks ever uh, yeah of my of my of my intake yeah well i mean that was the sort of logical you know i i i started we put on a, the English wine industry, which I mean, I was a director of the EVA for 20 odd years, 23 years, I think. Um, and we put on a we put on a day at the WACT, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, 
um, on English wine. And I spoke about the viticulture side of it. And having spoken about that, um, the viticulture lecturer at the WSCT had a terrible accident and became a paraplegic subsequent. But I was asked to step in to, to give the viticulture le lessons for the higher diploma, which, sorry, the higher certificate, which was the sort of under the diploma, and then the next year for the diploma. And for one year, I was doing higher certificate and diploma in the same, same year. And so I, you know, I had all this theoretical knowledge, I had the practical knowledge, uh, I didn't have the wine tasting, which was a bit of a stumbling block for me. But, you know, um, I went on and I sort of carried on lecturing on the diploma for a long while and got involved with a lot of MWs who were also lecturers. And I, I sort of got into, the, you know, I knew a lot of MWs. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And, you know, I joined the course and I forget, in 95, I think. Um, and um, I took the exam at the first opportunity, which was after sort of 18 months or two years, I forget now. And um, yeah, I passed the, the written side. There's the written side, the tasting side, and there's a dissertation in those days, now the research paper. Um, I passed the written side with uh, the highest marks and got the Mondavi Award, which I didn't know about. I took the exam in 97 or 8. I didn't know I'd got the award until 2003, because they don't tell you until you've actually become an MW. And then I tried to get the tasting side for at least four goes and fail, 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 fail. And I was a bit of a, you know, getting a little bit despondent. And it coincided with me changing my, the whole, you know, the, the winemaking come to an end. I went and did a degree at Brunel University. And uh, having finished my degree, I got involved with a, with a wine, uh, a, a, an investor who wanted to start a wine company. And she wanted me to, uh, to manage it for her, which I did. So I got in back into, I got into wine buying got into tasting practice, decided I would sign up for the MW and get back on the course. I had, I'd been given three years dispensation to leave it, which was you know, unusual, but I was allowed to do that. And then I got back on and then I took, took the exam, the tasting exam, that's the part I hadn't passed and passed it next time, so fifth go. And that's having done the dissertation, I did two dissertations, one of which failed, but one of which passed. And I, you know, the minute I knew I'd got the tasting side, I was an MW, that was in 03. So uh, 18 odd years now, uh, 19 years almost. Um, and you've, you've chosen to have a particular focus on English wine, as we're saying, and that's why you've got the book and, and we're having this conversation, and particularly with being an MW, you're gonna have such a broad knowledge of wine in general. I was just wondering, what, um, what do you think is the best way for the industry to go? Like, where do you see it heading from now? Um, what, the UK wine growing industry, you mean? Yes, yeah, and yeah. the producers, and uh, what do you think would be a good way? Well, I, I, think, I think it's, you know, it's, it's grown organically. I mean, it's grown from a really a, a sort of hobby-based industry, if, if you could call it that, which you probably can't. You know, it's grown from a few, a lot of amateurs, a few professionals. You know, I was unusual in that I was 27 when I started this journey. Um, and there were very few other people of my age. I mean, Peter Hall at Breaky Bottom, who's five years older than me, you know, he's now 78. Um, Anthony Goddard and Barton Man on the Isle of Wight, he's also, I think, five years older than me. But we three were sort of our, our almost the, the, the people, only people that are left from our intake, as it were. You know, we all planted around 75, 6, 7. Um, and, you know, most of the others are sadly are, are, are dead. 
um, because they were they were 50 and 60 and 70 when they started because they had already made they were farmers or they'd made money in somewhere else you know it was a retirement project for them so there were very few of us who actually saw this as a business as a something which we could make our, our, our working lives out of I was incredibly lucky because I had backing from the point of view of land ownership I had backing you know for 10 years we made no money I was able to you know give off my wits as it were and, and a bit of family help um and but I so I was very lucky in that respect and and today of course you know it has it has changed completely we've got a load of youngsters who are coming to it maybe their fathers even their grandfathers you know my oldest client Sandhurst Vineyards, you know, the grandsons are now running it and their boys are, their children are, you know, sitting on tractors and looking forward to when they can get involved. So, you know, we're into the sort of fourth generation um, and you've got, certainly got granddaughters, grandsons, granddaughters of, of founders who are running, running businesses. And they've grown up with the idea there is English wine, there is good English wine. You know, it is a business, people do buy it. You know, it's not such an outlandish thing as it was when I started with when there was 500 acres and today we've got almost I don't know 10 9 10,000 acres almost um so the industry I think is changing uh, you know I mean the most significant things that have happened of course apart from the size growth apart, apart from the amount of money that's gone into it you know Nye Timber has probably invested 200 million pounds in their enterprise which is a phenomenal amount of money um and you know they're building for the long term it's, it's, a, it's a generational business that they're creating but we have now got significant outside investment, not only outside in terms of country-wise. So you've got Tattinger, you've got Pomery, you've got um, recently Henkel, of course, have bought into uh, to to Bolney. Uh, you've also got in you know wine merchants within the UK buying in. So you've got Henners. Henners was bought by by um, I forget the name of the company, but they were bought. You've got um, Hatmansfield, which are involved with the Tattinger project. So they're a UK-based wine merchant. You've got one or two other you know, wine-interested people who have bought into English wines. So it's becoming much more of a mainstream occupation. Um, there are, you know, significant hurdles, a lot in, in, you know, we have to climb and jump and land on the other side of, which we haven't yet done, you know, financially. It's quite a difficult business to make money in. It's not impossible, but it's quite difficult. Um, our yields are lag well, well behind our competitors, which makes obviously from a cost point of view, makes life difficult. Um, except of course that makes, actually makes you really sell your wine at the highest, highest margins you can find. So selling it direct, obviously a lot more vineyards are able to sell direct. You know, we have a, we have a country of 60 odd million people. We have normally have visitors, 20 million visitors a year. No, it's not at the moment, but I mean, they will come back. Um, we've got a wine drinking population. We're all with most vineyards within reach of a large conurbation, London, obviously, but Manchester, Birmingham, perhaps not Manchester, but you know, Bristol, all the big centers of the Southeast have got vineyards within reach. So, so wine tourism is undoubtedly going to grow. grow. And I think if you look at every major wine producer in the UK, they've expanded their offering in terms of visitor attraction in, in lots of different ways. But, you know, some have got cafes, some have got restaurants, some have got hotels, got a better visitor experience, more tasting facilities. And, and that's good. And, you know, selling direct is undoubtedly going to be one of the major ways in which people, ca people can, can make money out of this business. Because sustainability doesn't... You know, sustainability has to start with financial sustainability. It has. Not, 
Sorry, Stephen. There's, there's only so long a hedge fund that can keep pumping money in. Exactly. You know. And it's got, it's got to be at a point where in order for them to maintain interested, they're going to be have to be having a reward other than just so this is a wonderful project to do. Because as you're saying, it is about the longevity of planting a vineyard isn't a short term plan. No. I was, um, as you said, there's a lot of investment going on. There are a lot of people being introduced to English wine. What would you say that for somebody who, who is brand new to it, what's the best way for them to be introduced? Should they just stick to sparklings or should they throw themselves in? What would you say to somebody who has no clue about English wine at all, but they want to want to? Well, I, I, I always start out by saying, right, what, where, who? And what are you going to What are you going to grow and make? Where are you going to do it and who's going to sell it? You know, unless you've got the answers to those three questions, you know, you've got unless you've got a vision of where you see this product being sold. You know, if it's grapes, you need a market. If it's wine, you need a market. If it's bottled wine, you need a different market. If it's sparkling wine, you need a different market. You know, you have to have a vision of where you're going with this. And, you know, before, I mean, yeah, we just we just made wine and hope we can sell it. You know, there were wine. They're all wine merchants who sell wine, aren't they? No, well, you know, it doesn't quite work like that because with much more competition now. So, you know, every time someone says to me, oh, well, I'd like to sell it in high-end restaurants and high-end hotels, you know, you say, well, dream on because that ain't going to happen very quickly. You know, you can throw a lot of money at it. You can employ a fabulous PR company. Uh, I won't name any names, but there are one or two people who have done that. And yeah, they will get it in by degrees, but at what cost? Uh, who knows? So, I say to them, right, okay, depending on the size, obviously if they're small, selling direct is much easier if they're, if they're large. And if you've got five, 10 acres uh, of that order, you can probably foresee selling most of it locally. Uh, if you've got 50 acres, no, you know where you're gonna sell that locally. Um, you know, you have to have a wholesale distribution system set up, whether you, whether you run that or whether you're in the hands of a merchant. But, you know, then you need to look at the costings, you need to look at the margins, you need to look at the real costs of selling, of maintaining contact with your with your customers. You know, exporting is, is you know, again, it's an expensive um, process if you're only, and especially if you're only selling, you know, small volumes, uh, because all your costs have to be borne by a very small volume. And I think a lot of people have found that exporting has not really yielded the rewards they thought it was going to. I mean, it's taken obviously taken a, a bit of a setback in the last two years, um, during which time English wine, I think, funnily enough, I think has done quite well out of Brexit, uh, out of sorry, out of Brexit, out of uh, COVID, uh, possibly out of Brexit as well, but out of COVID. You know, I think I think because people were trapped in the UK and looking for things to do, buying direct, visiting, you know, and and. In the in the food track in the food chain, you know, we all had exemption from from restrictions on where you could work, and you know, pe people could rock up to a vineyard and buy wine, and and you know, that was that was allowed um, even during the lo tightest lockdown. What do you think is a, a good way for somebody to be introduced to English wine if they're new to it? Because we're very lucky now that wine is everywhere; it's in all the supermarkets. And there was a time where it wasn't, and it was still quite a specialist. As you're saying, that's not the case. So if you had somebody who wasn't used to English wine, what would your advice be to them? Where oh, I, I would say go and, visit, go and visit a local vineyard, you know, okay. go away for the weekend, go to, go to Kent, go to Sussex, go to wherever, you know, visit a couple of vineyards, 
Saturday night somewhere nice. You know, going, you know, find a producer, you know, that you can find, you know, a respectable producer, and there's lots of it, lots of those. Go and see what they're offering and see what the different styles are and start to learn a little bit more about it. Um, I think that's much, by far and away the best way. And there you can see the vineyard, you can see the winery, you can speak to the people that run it, and you get a much better feel for what's on offer. And, and, and you know, the, the, big, the big criticism all the time is, uh, oh, it's so expensive. Um, you know, I have a standard set of replies about that. I, if it's, a, a, you know, a male, <laughs> I say, well, you know, how much would you pay for a football ticket? How much would you pay for a night at the opera? How much would you pay for a watch? You know, things that guys are interested in. Yeah, um, price is not an issue there. You know, it's a different thing. Or if it's a, a woman, I say, well, I usually say, how much does your shoes cost you for your wedding? You know, it's normally quite a several hundred pound uh, figure. Um, and how many times do you wear them once? Um, no, I said, you know, we all have our hobbies. And so for a lot of people, wine is a hobby. And, and the, price, the price is part of that hobby. You know, it's part of the day out salmon fishing or the day at night at the opera or, or, the, or going to the races or whatever. It's part of the day's experience. It's going and tasting some wine, finding something you like, buying it, taking it home. And then you are able to say to your friends and your, your, you know, the people that you're drinking about, oh, look, we bought this at so-and-so. It's really, you know, it's made like this and it's got this variety in it. And, it's re and you, know, you know, it's really, try it. And, and, you know, if it's good wine, they'll like it. And it's, it helps you become an ambassador for English wine. Um, obviously, if you're not, if you're buying it, if, if you're buying from a from a, um, a, a you know a wine merchant or a supermarket, I say, well, next time you think about buying a bottle of champagne for, for you know whatever a party or, or, or some sort of celebration, buy a bottle of English wine instead. It's about the same price as champagne, and I can guarantee you, you buy one of the major brands, you will be more than happy with it. I mean, um, I, I completely agree. It's, I think, one of the Avoid, avoid the, the very dry ones, I say. Uh, well, I, I think that one of the barriers the industry faces is in its simplest form, the introduction of English wine to people, because as you say, there are still barriers and people aren't sure. Going to the vineyards is a wonderful way to do that, to soak it up, to experience what people are enjoying and why they're enjoying the wines. Do you, I mean, we've mentioned that, that you think sparkling wines could be a good way to start, but what about the stills? What's your impression on the stills? Because as, as um, despite the volumes, it still seems well. To be a bit on more a, on, yeah, on a on a value for money scale, they 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 lag behind sparklings. I think they the good ones tend to be more expensive than they should be when you compare them to a lot of our country's wines. Um, the cheaper ones, you probably can get better value by buying cheap wine from somewhere else. Um, I mean. <laughs> It's difficult, you know. There's a lot of people who buy who buy English wine. I think you don't probably buy a, a great deal of wine. They're, they're they're not your average sort of wine buyer, um, and they just happen upon a, a vineyard or they happen upon a wine and they like it and they they're prepared to pay the money for it. It's a difficult one. It's difficult, and that's something that you know I'm a, I'm I'm known as a sort of bit of a data freak, and you know I've been doing these yield reports for the last well 18, 19, and twenty. Uh, in fact, I've done them for, for, well, six years. I've got six years data now, quite reliable data about, you know, yields of different varieties and yields of different regions and things like row spacing and vine density and altitude, uh, including sugar and acid readings. And so some, you know, there's some element of quality in there. And, you know, it's, it is possible to make, you know, to grow grapes and make, you know, make profits on reasonably priced still wine, but it's quite difficult quite difficult 
you have to have the vineyard in the best place, growing the right varieties, doing the job well. Um, and, you know, as we see, there are places in the country, I mean, the Crouch Valley, has, you know, as I said earlier, I think that's becoming known as a place for some very, very good grapes, partially on the back of the 18 harvest, but also 20 was good. Um, 21, I think, was less good for still wine. But then, you know, that's a good, good year for sparkling. So you need flexibility, which, again, you know, is something that if you're growing Pinot and Chardonnay, you've got and Mernier, you've got the flexibility of doing still wines in great years and sparkling wines in whatever seed for still wine, which would be not, not such great years. That's part of the, the, the sort of insurance you, you have when you plant a variety. Um, now, still wines, we're work, there's a little bit more work tonight to be done on that, I think. What about the, um, so I think the, the English reds are probably quite a, a barrier to entry, shall we say, for people because they are very, very different. They're much lighter in texture and body and uh, some of them are a lot more fruit forward. And the average, average consumer might be wrong way of putting, but say somebody who goes into a supermarket, there's this huge wall of wine, they'll generally grab predominantly the, the, the cheapest one and then they'll which may be a Malbec or, or a very mass-produced wine and they will compare the two it's it's until you're involved with wine and, and understand yeah, well I I, you know, I I don't think I don't think we should I don't think most growers should try and make red wine right that was going to be my question do, do you think it's yeah I mean how rich? much red wine how much red wine from the from Sancerre is to people drink? I mean I know you know everything has changed with climate change but I mean, you know, there's, you don't go to the Loire really, uh, anyway, the, this end of the Loire looking for red wine. You don't go to Muscadet looking for red wine. You don't go to, you know, lots of places only produce white wine. You know, it's changing obviously, yeah, with, with, with climate change and with people using different varieties. But I just think that on a, you know, they're, they're lower down the, lower down the, the value chain. Uh, and I, I think much better to produce a rosé, for instance. You know, I think, I mean, I've got quite a few clients now who are just growing, growing Pinot Noir for rosé. And making, we've got one particular client who we planted last year who's, who's got uh, the, current, the current idea is to make a high-end rosé, probably retailing at £20 or maybe or still rosé from Pinot Noir. And it's I think it's a very good business proposition. Do you think some of that is also due to the fact that a rosé you can release very, very young? It doesn't have to have much bottle oh, yeah. of red or oak, so therefore that improves your cash flow. Is that part of that, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I've had some good, you know, the, the 18 vintage was obviously an amazing vintage, and there's a lot of quite interesting red wines made from that vintage. And, yes, there will be spots in the country where, you know, particular vineyards planted with the right clones, the right varieties, knowing what they're doing, got the canopy management and the disease control right, who can let the grapes get to full ripeness. And yeah, they, they will manage to make red wines year in, year out, and they will age them, and they'll be selling them at three or four years old, and they'll probably be getting premium price for it. But they're going to be small volume. It's not going to be supermarket shelf stuff, I don't believe. Um, uh, but... And always, I'm happy to be proved wrong because I'm a bit of a pessimist. But I, you know, I, I, my job is I get a phone call, an email, um, whatever, from somebody saying I've got some land or I'm looking for land. You know, I, I'm interested in growing vines. I've read your book or I've seen your book, blah blah blah. So I have to go and see them, and I have to convince them, you know, in some way that this is actually a profitable business. I can't, I can't persuade them to plant if I say no. This is just a money sink into which you've got pouring. You've got to keep pouring cash. You know, I have to come up with a with a plan which says 
right, if you do this, if you do that, the chances are you sell it well and the wine's up to scratch, you will be able to make a return on what your, your, your investment. If I couldn't do that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a business. Um, you know, lots of people say to me, I mean, I, you know, oh, I, I'm not in it for making profit. I, I just, back, you know, I take a step back and say, look, that, that's, I, that's not the sort of client I want. I, I want someone to be happy with their investment, to make that investment pay. So it's still and, very much and, it has to be a business, which which of course it does if you're investing yeah. all about money, and not it, you know, passion. You know, I got, I mean, I got a file of people who I've I've been to see. I don't even go into these. I look at the land on Google Earth. It's 150 meters facing the wrong way. I just say, look, I'm not. This, I'm, <laughs> I'm not really going to be able to go down there and say I love I love your site. You know, um, and then they say, oh well, we're not in it for a profit. And I said, no, I, I appreciate that. I said, but. Yeah, find find someone else because there's someone else to take your money. I said, but I'm not I'm not going to. And quite often they're quite happy with that. And you know they they'll take if I go visit. You know we'll discuss the whole thing. And then you know maybe I mean three or four years later they may come back and say, look, we've been looking. We found some we found some other land. We you said the last time, can you come and have a look at this bit of land? We think it's much better. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. And you know maybe we get it off the ground and, and they start planting. Um, Do you think that? I, I, that's so I was going to just on that note because there are a lot of producers now there are new vineyards being planted and this seems to keep increasing but do you think that's actually a good way for the industry to go because it's going to be lots of small pockets of producers or do you think it would be better to have higher volume from or in theory higher volume from less producers oh, so I, less variety no I think the diversity that the, the more reasonable size vineyards are rather better because they'll 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 find their markets much easier the job the problem is marketing yeah of course the problem is not growing the problem there's a problem finding finding a site okay but that can be you know with time and with with funds that can be overcome once you've found a decent site the growing side is easy really um a lot easier than other crops and no more expensive than other crops to be honest you know, you put a hot garden in, which lasts you 20 years, uh, that costs you just as much as putting a vineyard in, which can last you twice that length of time. Um, yesterday's hops, last year's hops are not worth anything. You know, last year's wine, the year before's wine, wine from 10 years ago can be worth a lot of money. And so, you know, it's one of the very few agricultural crops that you know, increases in value the older it gets. Um, I'm sure there are others, you know, thousand year eggs. I don't know. There's a, probably are some other crops, but very, very few. Not as big, certainly not as big as, as wine. There's a whole industry based upon selling it. There's a whole industry based upon writing about it, criticizing it. You know, there's websites devoted to it. You know, it's it's a it's an agriculture crop like no other, and so it gets people interested. And the more vineyards you have, the more reasonable size produce. I'm not talking about two acre plots, I'm talking about five acre, 10 acre plots. So they're producing a reasonable amount of wine. They can afford to have someone help them with the selling. They can afford to have a retail shop on site. Um, and so, you know, and I think that the, they will have much more of a chance of, of surviving uh, without having to put lots of money into it than someone who's planted 50 acres, 100 acres, um, who then has to set up a whole sales operation. I mean, the thing that attracted me about the Tattinger project was, of course, that it kept Patrick McGrath, who runs Hatch Mansfield, came to me and said, look, we're as a company, you know, we're doing quite well. We're, we're, um, we're owned by two very significant wine companies. So we have, we have a little bit of, have to watch what we sell. We have a small number of brands. 
you know, we can't have competing brands, but we don't have an English wine presence. How would we, how would we get into English wine as a company? And I said, well, there's, you know, you could buy an existing producer. I said, there's not really many worth, worth buying uh, at the moment. Um, and I said, you can buy grapes and you can set up a winery or have a contract winery and do it that way. Or I said, you go the you know, whole hog and just buy land, plant it and off you go. And I he said, well, what would you recommend? So, well, obviously I was, you know, I said, well, buy land, you know, I'll help you. And off we went. That was it. Um, you know, two or three years later, we'd found some land, put the package together. Tattinger were keen to come on board. Other the other investors we've got were also keen to come on board. Um, we, you know, we sold the whole idea to them and then off we went, bought the land and planted. And here we are today with our first wine bottle this May, a last May, sorry. And um, so two or three years time, we will have our first product on the shelf. But that was led by Hatch Mansfield, who have a turnover of, I don't know, 75 million or something like that. We've got 30 or 40 salespeople on the road or, you know, in the sales side. Um, all of whom, or many of whom are actually shareholders, but, um, uh, you know, all of whom are waiting for this, this wine, which has been, <laughs> been a long time of coming. But when it does come, you know, it'll go on some good shelves. It'll go <clears> to <throat> some good wine lists, you know, hotels and restaurants. I can guarantee that. Yeah. Um, How do you think? And that's what, made, that's what made that project attractive. But, you know, if someone comes to me and just says, right, I want to plant 150 acres of vines, um, and I've got no idea where I'm going to sell it, you know, I, I will step back a bit and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, you need to think about this hard, you know, are, are you prepared for the, for the... Sorry, Steve, I was going to say, I mean, it definitely helps having the bigger brands on board, and obviously uh, Pomeroy, have got Lewis Pomeroy England, and they're producing wonderful wines, and as you say, if uh, Tattinger are now on board, and hopefully their sparkling wines will be coming through, do you, I mean, what do you see as the do you think that is a benefit for the industry having this outside investment coming in do you think that will help raise the profile um well i think it's done that already i think the fact that two fairly established and well-known champagne houses have put some money i mean so the domain evermond as it's called is only 51 percent owned by Tattinger. as 49 percent is you is basically uk owned um probably i'm not sure what the shareholding is there i suspect it's 100 of rank and pomery um i mean i think it just adds to the story really you know and for years people have been ringing me up and say oh i hear i hear motion on a buying night timber or i hear you know when night timber was sold in 05 when when um eric harema bought it and you know this, oh so many people said to me i hear motion on a buying it or i hear motion on doing this you know it was all it was all nonsense it never it never actually happened um but you know now it has happened I think it's 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 really put a put a you know different sort of twist on it. Oh, why why are they getting involved? It must be all right, uh, which to a certain extent it is. I mean, I you know I think it, I think it's good news from from. I think it gives Tattinger a little bit more of a you know they're they're been in the press a bit more. I mean they're you know I don't suppose it's done their their PR any harm whatsoever. Um, so I, I think it's a good thing. Do you think other ways that will potentially. Uh, benefit our industry is the fact that we have now left the EU. Have you? Uh, do you know any impacts that that's had already? I, I don't know. That's I don't know that's going to happen. Make any difference really? I mean, um, you know, a lot of it depends. You know, the cost of wine. A lot of it depends on the currency. I mean, the euro's getting a little bit better for us, but um, it's probably not going to get back to where it was previously. So the wine would be more expensive. 
but you know, of course, I mean, the most, let's be honest, most wine sells around the sort of, forget sparkling, but most still wine is selling sort of six, seven pounds. I don't know what the average price is, five something, I think, but you know, and at that price, the cost of the wine actually makes very little difference because it's mostly soaked up with duty, with, with VAT, with bottling, with distribution, with profit from the retailer. So the cost of the wine, the wine could double in price. It wouldn't make a lot of difference to the retail price um, because the wine is so, is, is, you know, the wine itself is relatively cheap. So I, I don't know that Brexit, I think, I think what Brexit stroke, the pandemic has, has done is made people think a little bit more about such things as food miles, about provenance, about buying local, you know, lots more people are selling food locally now for all kinds. And I think that's going to carry on. I, I don't see that stepping back. Uh, to, to where it was before. I think that there's lots of people now, especially as sending food to, to you know, for, for larger producers, sending food abroad has become slightly more difficult. It will, it will, I'm sure it'll balance out in the end. But a lot of smaller producers are finding that they can sell locally. Um, and uh, good luck to them. I think that's, you know, I think that's great. And I think that'll help English wine as well. So if we look, um say outside of the departure from the EU what do you see as the future for the industry how do you see producers moving forward or do you have any advice for them um well I, I think you, you know you have to it's organic growth I mean yeah it just really depends on what sort of lifestyle that the owners want um and what their finances are like I mean how you know how much time are they going to give to their vineyard? How much money do they expect to make out of it? You know, it's a, you know, selling wine direct to the consumer is, you know, has its limitations and it has its drawbacks. You know, you have to be there at times when they, people want to buy it. You know, it means weekends, it means Christmas time, it means, you know, high days and holidays. Um, you can't sell wine unless you're there. And that's, that's the problem with retailing. Um, so as soon as you hand it over to someone else to sell, you're giving away a massive margin. Um, you know, no one's going to sell your wine. No retailer and no shopkeeper is going to sell a product and not make a profit from. Why would they? And so, you know, one bottle sold direct to the public is worth three times the margin of a bottle sold by a, by a retailer, by a trader, by a wholesaler, by a restaurant. Maybe not quite so much, but, you know, because restaurants have a slightly different pricing profile. Um, but so it's not, you know, retailing is not for everybody. But if you're a sufficient size, you can afford to employ people and you can afford, afford, you know, to have nice premises and so forth where people get pleasure out of coming and tasting, then I think, I think you know, that's the way forward. And, and as you organically expand uh, your sales, as you learn which, where the best sales are, the best sales outlets, you know, you can afford to say, well, we need to plant a little bit more. Or you buy, or you buy a few more grapes, you know. Or you build your own winery if you haven't got one. You know, you make it, you start developing it, and that's the way most people have got, have gone. Um, and I don't see that changing. Um, and I think uh, it's becoming, you know, you can. I mean, yes, okay. There's lots of restaurants and hotels which don't have English wine on their list, but you see it so much more now on wine lists. I mean, I. I, you know, I live in London, so I see more. I see, you know, we we probably eat out a couple of times a week, um, and you know, English wine is becoming much more of a, a of a regular uh, regular on on wine lists.
It is, it is. I think, I mean, it's it's nothing but good news that it's being pushed by sommeliers and it is getting out there in, in all these yeah. myriad of different forms, including the large supermarkets, as we mentioned. And Stephen, thank you so much for putting your, your time aside. I thought just before we wrap up, what are your future plans? What, what's coming next for yourself? Ah, well, uh, at age 33, you know, I've, um, I'm, I'm winding down. I'm mean, going to have children on I have children live in, in New York, Dallas, and Hawaii. So I don't see them very often. I don't see my five grandchildren very often. Um, I see a lot of younger people coming into the business. Good luck to them. You know, um, a lot of consultants in now who are, um, you know, 30, 40, I've got another 30, 40 years left in them. Um, I, I like to, I, you know, I'm quite happy to, to, to carry on with my writing, with my, I'm involved with, the, with YGB a little bit. I'm involved with the MWs a little bit. Uh, and um, I'm in the moment, I'm just in the middle of, I haven't got a new book. I've got a couple of ideas, which I've been pitching to publishers. I got one idea of, of a self, again, a self-published book, because I currently, apart from the book that you're reading now, all my others are self-published. I've got three or four books which sell quite well, the textbook um, and the wine growing in Great Britain sells quite well. Um, they will both need updating at some stage. Um, so I'm, I'm, um, I've got enough on my plate, but with one thing and another. Yeah, thank you for your time, much appreciated. Playing fridge, playing fridge when I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> thank you, all the best. All right, okay, thanks very much.